Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasami Just in case uh, some of you are wondering um, what the little solo uh, is that um, people have, various random people have been doing <laughs> uh, before the Dhamma talk. Um, this is the uh, traditional way of of inviting the, the Dhamma to be expressed, expounded. Um, and uh, the words come from uh, an incident recounted in the the teachings, which um, occurred just after the Buddha's enlightenment, and um, even though, as uh, the uh, the story goes, the uh, prior to his uh, accomplishment of Buddhahood, the uh, the Bodhisattva had uh, spent uh, eons and eons and eons perfecting all these uh, fine spiritual virtues um, for the purpose of um, fulfilling the human potential and uh, being of of benefit to all other beings. But um, when he finally arrived at uh, complete enlightenment, Buddhahood, then uh, the thought arose in his mind, this is way too difficult. There's absolutely no one, no one's going to understand this. This is this is too abstruse, too subtle, too uh, too difficult to see. And even after all this effort that I put myself through, it's it's taken just one individual this long to to see the truth. So if I tried to explain this to other beings, then uh, no no one would understand me and. Uh, so if I tried to teach it, this would be wearisome and troublesome for me. And so on that reflection, then the, the, the newly enlightened Buddha was disinclined to teach. So then, uh, overhearing this thought in the Buddha's mind, um, this uh, deity called the Brahma Sahampati uh, was, was listening in and uh, picked this thought up in the Buddha's mind and thought, uh, oh no, no, this, this, uh, we can't let this be. The world will be lost. The world will be utterly lost. The, uh, the mind of the newly enlightened Tathagata is inclined towards inaction. So, uh, and then Brahma, the Brahma Sahampati is like the creator god in the, he's the sort of managing director of the universe. And, uh, He's the uh, that kind of overlord type figure for the universe, and so um, he, uh, Brahma Sahampati, realizes that uh, that this would be a great um, shame if uh, this newly enlightened Buddha doesn't teach, because Buddhas are pretty rare, <laughs> pretty hard to come by, and so then he beams down from the Brahma realm and appears in front of the Buddha, and then kneels down. And then um, says uh, to the Buddha, um, there are beings. Uh, it is true that many beings are um, are very deluded and lost, and they're caught up in um, their conditioning, in the realms of fear and desire and and aversion. Um, but there are some with just a little bit of dust in their eyes, uh, who, uh, if you teach the Dhamma, they will understand. And then the Buddha, uh, listening to this, then cast his vision, his uh, 
and clairvoyant vision around the world and saw that the Brahma, God was right. He saw that, yes, it's true. There are some beings with just a, a little bit of dust in their eyes and uh, uh, they will understand. So for the sake of those uh, uh, lightly dusted ones, when the, the Buddha undertook to, uh, to teach and then spent the next 45 years wandering around northern India barefoot, spreading the word. And uh, we, two and a half thousand years later, are still inheriting the, the benefit of that, um, uh, of that response. So we have a lot to thank the Brahma Sahampati for. So. And so this little verse that uh, yeah, Rachel just did and uh, Taraniya did yesterday, this is, uh, recounts that same incident and repeats some of the words of the Brahma God so that, um, uh, you know, that these are degenerate times. So <laughs> Brahmas are hard to come by and Buddhas are even rarer, so we have to make do with, with, uh, with what we've got. So, uh, so that this is uh, the way that uh, the... Uh, the Dhamma is invited to be taught, so for the, for the sake of those who are here with only a little bit of dust in, the, in uh, your eyes, then um, we invite the Dhamma to be spoken. It's also part of the principle of um, uh, but the Buddha Dhamma not being a um, proselytizing tradition. The, the Buddha forbade um, trying to impose the teaching upon the... Um, uh, the un- <laughs> the unwitting and the unwary <laughs> that we, we can't go out into the streets and proclaim the wonders of Buddhism or go around knocking on people's doors and uh, try offering to straighten everybody out. That's uh, for their own good. That's uh, forbidden for uh, for us as monastics. Um, so that it's. Uh, it's always a, a tradition that the the uh, the teaching is invited. Like I couldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to to call up IMS and say, "Would you like me to teach a ten day retreat next year?" You know. That uh, uh, you you wait till you're invited, till there's a, an appetite, a hunger there, and then one responds to that. Similarly, um, using the um, you know the principle of of the time and the place, the situation to to elicit the the teaching. The um, yesterday evening, I was talking a little bit about. Um, some of the uh, perceptions and social conventions that uh, exist in, in Thailand and uh, a, um, one of the other things about uh, living in, in Thailand um, and getting to, to know a little bit of the Thai language um, because the Thai culture um, is built very much around the presence of, of Buddha Dhamma then much of the language is also heavily influenced by um, Buddhist concepts, you know, Buddhist uh, teachings. And so you find all kinds of very interesting little um, qualities embodied uh, in the Thai language. Um, I mean, I could spend the whole evening just going through various different things, but one that uh, that crossed my mind, was brought to my mind today, this evening, was um, that the uh, the Thai word for ordinary. Um, so to us, like in English, if, if something is normal or ordinary, it's pretty boring, right? It's the normal day. It was a normal day. And you know that's going to precede something, you know, abnormal is about to happen. But, <laughs> but uh, you say it's ordinary, how do you feel? Oh, kind of normal. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, what was the what was the Dhamma talk like? Oh, pretty ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your mind like? Normal. <laughs> uh, 
So it's a kind of bland, uh, it has a, these associations in English of sort of bland mediocrity, nothing um, good or bad about it. Um, and so that uh, it's, it's uh, interesting that the, um, in, the, in the Thai language the word for, for ordinary or normal is tamada. Tamada. And this word um, uh, in the Thai language is derived from the Pali word dhammata. Dham and dhammata means uh, of the nature of dharma. So it means, uh, and dharma can mean nature, it can mean uh, the way things are, it can, it can mean uh, the Buddha's teachings, it can mean ultimate reality. So that uh, there's this a really uh, wonderful way in which that which is ordinary, the, the, that, uh, that which we refer to as kind of unremarkable, tamada, and they, they would use the word in the same way. How, you know, how do you feel today? Oh, tamada, just ordinary. But, um, but also embedded in that, there's a different layer. Uh, there's another layer of meaning. And uh, so that it points to the fact that, that, that uh, hidden just below the surface of the, the ordinary is the, uh, is the, uh, another quality, that of, of, the, of the Dhamma itself. So that... Uh, when we say something is is normal, it's ordinary, <laughs> then in the, the the what the the Thai word evokes is that it is also as well as being normal, unremarkable. It is also of the nature of of Dharma. It is a, a, a say a, a manifestation of ultimate reality. And the and the two do not preclude each other. It's the, the, they contain each other, which is a. a a wonderful, just in that one word, you know, you basically you got the whole teaching. <laughs> the interpenetration of, of a convention, conventional truths and ultimate truths. The interpenetration of, of uh, the world of, of the manifest and the, uh, and the unmanifest, the conditioned and the unconditioned. So it's all, it's all right there. Tamada. It's ordinary. It's of the nature of of ultimate reality, Dharma. So, just uh, pondering that, yeah, when uh, when we go through our life, we go through a day, we look at our thoughts, we look at our body, we look at our personality, we look at our life, pretty ordinary, of being a sort of an average person living an average life on an average planet, <laughs> in a kind of average galaxy, <laughs> somewhere in the suburbs of the, you know, of the, uh, of the known universe. Yeah, nothing very special. But yet, uh, we look below the surface and, uh, and all of it is of, all of it is Dharma, all of it is of, absolute significance of uh, absolute value. So what is it then that um, that makes something when we call it normal or ordinary, nothing special? What is it that therefore uh, makes us deduce that that's insignificant, unimportant, ignorable, that something in us switches off. Why do we get bored? You know, why, do we, why do we seek excitement, the, the interesting? Have you noticed how that uh, if something is exciting or interesting, it's intrinsically good in our culture? You know, we say, oh, oh that's interesting, therefore it's good. Right? Oh, oh, that's really exciting, right? therefore it's good. <laughs> Why? Why do we do that? Why is that? 
Why is it that something that's interesting, something that's exciting, how come that's good? Did anybody ever thought of that? <laughs> it's so automatic, isn't it? That it's, if I'm excited, that's a good thing. Because <laughs> what happens is that um, the familiar, the ordinary, the tamada, uh, is boring. And uh, there's this, this relationship that, that um, exists between uh, the, the world as we experience it. There's this veneer that's created by our, say, habitual way of seeing. The, the, um, the habitual self-centered view. The the um, the way of casting everything into um, a form of of uh, me here, the world out there, this and that, right and wrong, good and bad. The way we we look upon the the sensory world, the conditioned world, as being you know, absolutely solid and real. And it's that um, the you know, this quality I was talking about last night. It's it's this that makes uh, makes things boring. If, as long as there's a sense of self, then we can experience boredom. And the, the stronger the sense of self, the more bored we will be. If there's no sense of self, it's impossible to be bored. If you can, you can toy with this over the, you know, during the, the, the course of the, the, this retreat. But you notice that if there's no sense of self, then everything is, is delightful. It's like the, the mind is utterly content just with the present moment, whatever it contains. Just the feelings of the body, breathing, or not even noticing the breathing. Just nothing, doing nothing, just hearing, feeling. Odds and ends show up, disappear. And it's, it's absolutely grand. <laughs> Nothing is missing, we're not looking for anything, we're not trying to get rid of anything. We're, there's a sense of completeness, per- perfection, delight. And then as soon as I come along, I'm like, oh, this is nice. Or, uh, I wish I, or, or uh, any kind of self-creation, any kind of, of feeling of I and me and mine, comes along and suddenly... That uh, that simplicity, that deliciousness, that delight, is lost. Then we want, then we find ourselves bored, and we want to be interested. We want to be stimulated. We want to derive our sense of being from that charge that we get from novelty, or from um, becoming something, battling something, getting rid of something, or even you know agonizing over something. And we find ourselves so habituated to this that, that uh, when, sometimes in that moment when, the, when the, the, the chasing after things or the running, uh, the running away from things, the struggling against things, stops, then we, we feel a, a terrible wave of bereavement. Yeah, who am I? <laughs> what am I if I'm not getting something or escaping from something or developing something or wrestling with something? And, and you might think that it'd be really nice to get rid of your problems. You know, all those sort of unrequited romances and, and unpaid debts and all those uh, unresolved struggles in the family you know, that we all have. Think, oh, it'd be so great if I didn't have all of these agonies and difficulties, problems, all this stuff that's in my way. If I could just get rid of this, then I could, I could really do something with my life. I could go places. I could, I'm being weighed down by this endless pile of burdens. And if I just didn't have this particular, this, just this particular neurotic problem, or this particular ailment, or this particular sibling slash spouse slash ex-spouse slash commitment slash debt slash whatever, 
uh, or collection of whatevers, <laughs> then everything will be fine. But um, as uh, as Gurdjieff once said, uh, you can take away everything from people except for their suffering. They'll cling on to that until death. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's okay to get rid of our, our glories and our pleasantnesses, but... You know, we can do without that, but take away our, our pain and struggle, then uh, we're really in trouble. I'm, I'm very fond of quoting a, which, which I, I don't think I did already, but uh, forgive me if I did. But, uh, I'm very fond of quoting this exchange that took place um, a number of years ago when the um, uh, the Gorbachev government in in Russia was um, had launched the the uh, programs of Glasnost and Perestroika. He was kind of restructuring, renewing the Russian outlook, Soviet Union, and and sort of heralding the the, the collapse of um, this sort of Soviet power bloc. And uh, anyway, uh, during this time, uh, there was a, a meeting over here in the States and. Uh, the foreign minister, Shevardnadze, was sitting down at this meeting um, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. All the, all the big shots, the high-ups, were all gathered around this table. And various welcoming speeches had been done, and the, the meeting had opened. And then um, it came time for, for uh, Shevardnadze to, to say his piece. And uh, he looked around the table at all of the... Uh, you know, the white men in suits <laughs> from America gathered around and said, we are going to do something terrible to you. So all of those cleanly shaven jaws tightened and the, the necks started throbbing and, and they thought, oh dear, what's, what's going to come now? He says, and he paused, he sort of let the, let the moment settle and get you know, suitably pregnant, and then said, uh, we are going to deprive you of an enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Which was absolutely true. It was the most terrible thing that could be done to America. I mean, ever since then we had to conjure up Noriega and Saddam Hussein and Colonel Gaddafi and... Yasser Arafat, and you know, I don't know who the current one is, but uh, <laughs> sure, somebody's being being gunned at as the uh, as the arch enemy, the archety- the archetype of evil, because they they've lost the Soviet Union as a as a kind of as a target, because we derive a sense of being so easily from what we're opposed to, what we're fighting against, and suddenly when the fight is over, it's like, oh. Or on a much sort of more homely scale, another example that, that we're, we're probably all familiar with is, you know, when you've been uh, uh, working around the place or tidying up your, your apartment or your, 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 your home, doing this, doing that, finally you get all your jobs done and you plunk yourself down on the chair and you go, ah, ah, one. Probably not even five seconds go by when that feeling arises. <sighs> there must be something around here that I should be worrying about. You know, we, and the mind starts to hunt for something to be anxious over, right? It's I find it's not usually five seconds before it. it so one one decent exhalation, and then that's it. It's like we start looking for a, a thing to 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 build a sense of of self around. So that's the source of boredom, is that is this this kind of habit of self creation. And if we just at that moment say, you know, take a you know another inhalation and <laughs> and stop looking. And just allow ourselves to, to be there. Let that that habit dissipate. Then we realize, oh, this is fine, just as it is. And we relax into that moment. 
we allow ourselves to to be with that spaciousness. We we break that that restless habit of of self creation. We realize that if there's if we don't bother creating a self, then nothing is missing. So the ego, undefined being, is is disaster, death, because it seems like I, I am not anything. So it, it it scrabbles desperately, trying to piece some kind of a a, a person together. Anything will do. <laughs> and you might have experienced that already during this retreat. Just when you sit there and you know practicing letting go and. The mind is throwing up, you know, an aversion here or a desire over there or you know, an important program over here, and then suddenly, a, you know, an old show tune over here. And, <laughs> yeah, I have had ex- I have had the experience of of hearing most of Oklahoma, <laughs> which I hadn't listened to since I, my my sisters had my elder sisters had these all these Rodgers and Hammersteins musical. LP, you remember the days of the LPs? Yeah. When I was about three or four years old, they had these these LPs of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals, and I hadn't listened to them since I was about five or six. But there it all was, when the wind comes whistling down the plane. <laughs> yes, yeah, song after song after song, it was all there. Just that the mind desperate for something to 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 hang on to. But it's amazing how it hops around, you know, kind of gets a bit of a, a purchase with some sort of, you know, a, a nice interesting fantasy over here, and it's like getting a bit of interest going, and so that fuels it, and that keeps going. They say, no, 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 let go, let go, let go. And so, okay, that fantasy's not working. Okay, let's try a, a an unresolved problem. Yes! <laughs> and then this kind of argument you had, Ten years ago, that you know, you never really worked out with your with your brother. That then you know, replay that a few times. Say, well, that was ten years ago, and besides, you know, you know, we've had all kinds of good times since then. Even though we we did have that argument. So yes, but it might still be there under the surface, you know. And he said, "Yeah, that's true." And then, okay, we got another bite. And then <laughs> off that goes for a while. You know, let go, let go, let go. And it just hops around. It's totally flagrant, isn't it? It's absolutely shameless. Anything will do. Anything will do. It's like it's the kind of desperate salesman trying to get any kind of a any kind of a sale. Anything will do. You know, if they can't sell you a car, they'll sell you a hairbrush. You know, or, <laughs> or a telephone, or a, you know, a long distance carrier, or. Good karma futures or something. They haven't quite made the market yet. Good karma futures. They haven't quite made a market for that yet, but soon. <laughs> so just seeing that that kind of that habit, the, the the turbulence, the agitation of that habit. Is a lot of what the practice is about. Just being able to be to meet that, and just to to say, you know, I know you, Mara. I know what this is. This is just the the frenzy of the the ego, trying to to uh, convince. Just the momentum of habit, and in that moment, just letting it, letting it go, not being pulled in. And allowing ourselves just to the heart to experience that spaciousness, that undefined quality of being. Now, in the the Buddha's descriptions of the the four noble truths, which are well, Guess most people here are familiar with, but uh, um, but uh, this is a, so the uh, the Buddha's essential formula for a sort of a, a map of the spiritual domain of what's 
what's necessary, what, basic, what the basic problem is, and what's the, uh, the way to, to work with it. The Four Noble Truths. And the, the familiar way that they're expressed um, is like a, uh, they're cast in the form of an of a Ayurvedic diagnosis, actually. That's the way that the form the Buddha used. And in Ayurveda, um, apparently, that you have this four-part um, diagnosis. You have the nature of the symptom, uh, the cause, the prognosis, is it curable or not, and then the medicine, the, the methodology of, of cure. So that's the, the, the format. So the Buddha picked that up and used that for the, the Four Noble Truths to, to deal with the ailment of unawakenedness, of ignorance. So the, the symptom of ignorance, as I've been saying, if, there's, if you start out with avijja, with ignorance, with not knowing, then the result is unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, a feeling of discontent, alienation. And that can be of any kind, subtle or gross, uh, whatever, whatever form it takes. So that's the symptom, is I don't like this. <laughs> it shouldn't be this way. It's probably the, um, the, these kind of uh, ways that we react. That's the symptom that you know, if that's, if that's the feeling, then you know that there's, there's some ignorance in the background. We're not, we're not seeing clearly. And the cause of that uh, symptom, the cause of the ailment, is where ignorance has caused us to grasp some kind of desire, some kind of uh, urge to get hold of something, to get rid of something, to, uh, to pursue um, some kind of pleasant feeling. Um, there's a whole range of different kinds of, of um, desire. But it's not just desire of any kind at all, but it's just, uh, and the word tanha, which uh, from the, the, the Buddha used, literally means thirst. So it has this quality of craving and agitation um, so we can say that you know, it is the desire for enlightenment a you know, cause of, of, of suffering? Is the desire to help others? Well, no, there, there are kinds of desire that are, are completely wholesome, utterly noble, and have no painful result at all. So it's not like the Buddha wasn't saying every um, intention or volition towards a goal is intri- intrinsically problematic. It's not that at all. But it's those kinds of, of desire which are woven in with the, the sense of self, which have this quality of, of agitated craving that, uh, that are the, the cause of the problem. And so any kind of, of, uh, of craving of, of that kind for, sens- for sensual pleasure, for pleasant feeling, craving to become something, ambition, uh, craving to get rid of, to, to wipe out, to, to, uh, to not be, to get rid to kind of destroy uh, a feeling, a thought, something within us. But these are the different kinds of, of uh, desire. So then the, the prognosis is, yeah, it's curable. There is a, the, this uh, ailment can be, can be cured. We can live. We can experience life completely free from this quality of, of alienation, of dukkha, we can, we can experience a, a life that is utterly free, harmonious, uh, easeful. And then the, the medicine is what's described as the Eightfold Path, or, or more briefly, um, virtue, concentration, and, and wisdom. Virtue, kind of mental, mental training, samadhi, and wisdom. So this is the, the, you know, the customary form of the, of the Four Noble Truths. So e- for each of those truths, there's a way in which they are to be handled, or to be worked with. And this was the Buddha outlined this in his very first teaching, the very first discourse. After he'd been persuaded by Brahma Sahampati to, to, to teach, then he eventually sought out his uh, five companions, uh, fellow wanderers that he'd been uh, pursuing ascetic practices with and 
who he'd left to, to find his own way. He went back and sought them out. And then the, this teaching on the middle way and the Four Noble Truths was the first thing that he, he described to them. So the first Noble Truth, that of Dukkha, the way to handle it, the way to work with it, is that Dukkha is to be apprehended. Like this is the beginning of the path, is to recognize this is Dukkha. <laughs> Not, um, you know, he doesn't like me, or I, you know, I want more of this, or I shouldn't be like this, or I wish I was like that. Or, uh, but to step back from the details and say, oh, this is Dukkha. Not wanting this pain in my leg. This is Dukkha. Wanting things to be different from the way they are. Oh, this is Dukkha. So it's that recognition of that, that quality of dislocation. We apprehend it. We understand it. We, we, we recognize what's, what's happening. So then for the second one, the way of handling it is that that, that craving, self-centered craving, is to be let go of. This is why we talk about letting go all the time, letting go, abandonment. That uh, when we experience, when we, we see that, that kind of surging in the heart, wanting this, grab, grasping this, pushing that away, that we respond to that by letting go, by loosening the grip. The... Uh, the third noble truth, or let's say the, the, the fourth, take, let's take the fourth one, first of all. The fourth noble truth, the, the path, is to be cultivated, to be developed. So that those qualities of, of virtue, of, of mental focus, mental training, wisdom, these are to be cultivated, developed, brought into being. They don't just happen on their own. They need to be... Uh, Nurtured, like a, like a garden, like a child. Like they need to be brought forth. And then the, the third truth, uh, which is the, why I mention this, which is particularly significant, is that when, uh, when, the, when suffering ceases, when that dukkha dissolves, when we've let go of that craving, say we want to not experience pain. We want to, to have this or that. When we've let go of that desire, that craving, then as I've been describing, then there's this feeling of relief. Now, if we uh, are, uh, if we're not careful, then what happens is there's a moment of, of relief as the, the painful feeling disappears or we, we experience that absence of of desire, you go, oh, great. And then, because uh, that spaciousness, because space is not interesting, because emptiness does not grab our attention, because the silence between the words is not as meaningful or, or uh, uh, attractive, interesting, as the words, as the space between people is not as interesting as the people. And interesting can be attractive or unattractive or whatever. You don't say, oh, what a beautiful space between, <laughs> between you and me today. You, we don't say that kind of thing, do we? Oh, there's, there's lovely space between, you know, between me and the window. Oh, what a beautiful space in, the, in your lawn. It's like we don't say that. Oh, what an ugly! You know, that's a really ugly space in in the in the sitting room there. We don't say that because it's like what an ugly piece of furniture. Well, you know, what an what an ugly face looking out of the mirror. What a you know, what a what a what a beautiful tree. The judgments, the interest, the opinions form around the objects. So space is not interesting. Peace is not interesting. It's not exciting. And as I was saying before, the conditioning that we have is that if it's interesting and exciting, it's good. 
If it's normal, if it's ordinary, it's not interesting. So space, emptiness, is the most ordinary and normal thing of all, right? There's more space than there is anything else <laughs> in the physical world, right? And, and if, you, if you know a little bit about physics, you know that even, say, a solid object like this bell, you think this is a nice solid metal bell, well, even the most solid of things is, is mostly uh, space. In an average atom, the, uh, the nucleus of the atom, say you have an atom of hydrogen, then the, um, the nucleus of the atom is like a, a, an orange, and the electron that spins around the nucleus is like uh, is at the distance of the edge of a, a football field, football stadium. So that's just the hydrogen atom, most simple, one proton, one electron. So it's you know you've got a lot. There's a lot of space in a in a football stadium, and if the the solid, the kind of the main lump, the main solid bit is is a nucleus, you have to go all the way across the stadium to get to the electron, which is just you know a fragment of the size of the of the the nucleus. So the atom itself is is like ninety nine point nine 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 percent space. That's the same for, for the all material world. Our own bodies. You know, we say, oh, I'm 70% water. Wow, think of that. Well, the water is like 99.99999% space. You know. <laughs> Most of what we are in, in the physical world is, is space. You know, if, you, um, if you've read anything about black holes, the, um, where, you have the ma- where matter has collapsed so that there is no space in them, that the you know, protons and neutrons and electrons and everything have collapsed under this sort of super gravitational force to it. they've gone undergone this enormous crunching. The entire mass of the planet Earth would fit in a teaspoon. That's us too. We're this <laughs> all of us, not only everybody on in this room, everyone all of IMS, this entire building, this wonderful grand stately home, all of the grounds, all the trees, all of Massachusetts, all of the USA yeah, the whole northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, all the oceans, the fishes and the trees and the whales and the mountains, the whole caboodle could be squished down into, I mean, you could get half a dozen of them. <laughs> 20, 30, 20 or 30 of them in a glass. You know. <laughs> Heavy stuff. So... Space is incredibly common, but it's of no significance, is it? We, when we look at each other, we don't think, wow, there's this really interesting space between your atoms, Damien. <laughs> you know, we don't, because we, you know, the, we, the space is neither female or male, it's not old or young, it's not tall or short, it's, it doesn't grab our attention. The senses pick up that which is not space, that which is possessed of form. So we have to go counter to the habit of our senses, which are geared for basically physical survival in, a, in an aggressive, dangerous world. And you know, most of our, our instincts are, are built around uh, procreation, uh, physical safety, and food gathering. <laughs> You know, even though we might think of ourselves as a sort of very sophisticated 21st century um, non-violent, ethically correct beings, unfortunately, most of our chemistry hasn't quite caught up with the program, and that um, you know, and particularly the sense world is uh, is heavily geared towards you know the discernment, discrimination in the world of, of form. That's what its job is. It's, it's what's to keep us physically safe, fed, sheltered, keep the, uh, keep the, spe- keep the gene pool moving, multiplying. That's what the, the senses are geared to do. Their, their kind of job is that, uh, keeping the organism in, in, uh, in one piece. So we have to consciously pull away from that, that habit, and not be, not be drawn along by that habit, 
and to to learn to recognize space. So this is the with the third noble truth. Um, the way that it's to be handled is that that the dukkha, the ending of dukkha, dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha, is to be realized. Which means when the uh, when the that alienation is dissolved, when the the, the that dislocation, dissatisfaction dissolves, like when the hum of the, the motor stops. It's like staying with the absence of the hum in more than two seconds after it's over. It's like realizing, oh, there is now no dukkha. Because all of our instinct, the whole sensory system, uh, says, oh, nothing's happening here. Where's the next interesting thing? Where's the next significant thing? Where's the next thought? Where's the next emotion? Where's the perception? Something. Because that's what it's geared to do, is to look for the world of things. Because there might be something that's going to attack us, there might be something that we can eat, or something that we can mate with. You know, so, so you know, and I know we do think, I mean, I'm a monk, you know, so I'm supposed to be really a sort of, you know, elevated, sophisticated human being. But, you know, in many ways, much of our system is not far above the kind of monocellular, <laughs> kind of escape it, eat it, or or mate with it program. <laughs> you know, it's it's a little bit humbling to acknowledge that, but and we, we kind of dress it up in all sorts of very polished ways. You know, someone was talking about this used to be a very stately home. You have the the the, the vice governor of deputy governor of Massachusetts used to live here, and they have all these coaches pulling up, and all the people in their their grand costumes and. The, um, the little shrine room, uh, which is the yoga room where we are, where we have our, our meal, that used to be the orchestra pit, or the orchestra stand, and then the, this little room out here, that was the ballroom. So, you know, people swishing in with their, with their crinolines and their, their tailcoats and their bow ties and their, their dripping with diamonds. Meanwhile, the program of, you know, who's mating with who, you know, who's competing with who, you know, get out of my space, you know, this is mine, I want that one, is the, is the, the subtext. I don't think I would be too presumptuous to, uh, to uh, suggest that. But, um, you know, we dress it up in, in, in these ways, but the, the conditioning is heavily towards that. So to act, to to notice space, to let the mind stay with with spaciousness, emptiness. We have to to say go against the current of a tremendous amount of conditioning, which is why the Buddhist the Buddha said, no one's going to understand this. Because this, the, the, because living beings are so heavily conditioned to going with that current, it seems so reasonable. It seems so normal. It seems so uh, obvious. So, say attending to to that which is uh, not tied to the sensory world, attending to to the the space of the mind, attending to the absence of of struggle, letting the heart rest in that that openness, that emptiness, it's a, a tremendously subtle task. But it is also where suffering ceases, where there is no dukkha, where there is true happiness, uh, is is accessible. So that uh, even though it's a subtle and and testing endeavor it's also in many ways the the the, uh, the most rewarding the most uh, wonderful of all you know, human potentialities another way of of uh, reflecting on the four noble truths um which was uh, the way one of the, the great uh, Thai forest masters presents it uh, uh, an 
elder monk who actually passed away some years ago now called Lumpudun um, had a different way of rendering the Four Noble Truths. And uh, he kind of switches the order around a little bit, so you get two, one, four, three. Sort of <laughs> so, um, saying the cause of suffering is the mind which reaches out and, and uh, takes hold of things. And the result of reaching out and taking hold of grasping is suffering. The, uh, the path is uh, the mind which lets go, that, uh, that does not grasp at the, the conditioned world. And the result uh, of, that, uh, of following that path is the cessation of suffering the ending of suffering. So the mind which reaches out and grasps is the cause and the result of that is suffering. The mind which, which lets go is the path and the result of that, of following that path is no suffering, happiness. So that's an interesting way of reflecting on it. A very simple and tangible way of looking at it. Now, the... um, When we we talk about this, um, the mind, this this mind which is empty, or the mind which is not grasping, and just to um, when we we talk about spaciousness or emptiness, it's easy to uh, to think of this in terms of, or, or, or to to assume that it means a, a kind of wipeout or nullification or negation of the sense world, um, some kind of switching off. And as you, you develop the practice and during this, this time, you hopefully will see that it, it isn't, doesn't work that way. I mean, there are kinds of meditation that you can do where you can sort of focus the mind to such a point um, that you do literally... Um, switch off the rest of the sense world. This is uh, like I was using this expression earlier today that the point which excludes, like the, focusing the mind on, on on one point, on one object, so totally and so tightly that everything else in the, in the realm of, of sense and thought is 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 uh, switched off, is is not noticed. We can do that. But uh, the kind of, and there are benefits that, that can come from that, but the kind of practice that I, I'm describing and um, that which is sort of intrinsically most liberating is more uh, the, what I was describing as the, the point which, which includes that quality of, of openness, like an embracing of the present moment. So we might be uh, placing a, a particular object at the center of attention, um, or not. So we might place the breath at the, as the center of attention, or not. Just um, using that principle, the point which includes, as saying that the, the present moment itself is the object of meditation. Embracing, taking hold of, holding the... The, the, all the qualities of the present in this moment. So what we're trying to do, what we're aiming for, is finding this quality of mind that can be uh, receptive to and, uh, and fully 
harmonized with the sense world, yet not confused by it. That which can be uh, attuned to the, the world of sense. Not chasing after the beautiful, pushing away the painful, or either opinionating about the, the rest or just dozing off. Now the, um, there's a teaching that the, the Buddha gave um, on this. The, um, do you find, uh, it's a, uh, I won't, it's getting late in the day so I won't uh, tell you the whole story. But uh, it starts off with a, a monk sitting meditating and asking himself the question, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder? Which is to say, um, is there a place where the world stops or one could, ex- one could experience um, the, the world of form coming to an end? Or not just one could be apart from that, of the material form of earth made up of the four elements, earth, water, fire and air. Is there a place, some, some, some dimension, some place where we could be free of that? Is that possible? Can the world end in that way? So then this question forming in his mind, he develops the, the psychic power and, and goes up into the, the realm of the gods. And first of all, he visits the, the realm of the four, uh, the four guardian deities, the four kings, and asks them, can you tell me, where is it that earth, water, fire and air fade out and cease without remainder? And they say, oh, well, we don't know that. Well, that's beyond us. We're, we're just the guardians, you know, the, the local parlors. We're just the sort of, uh, you know, we're just the security service. <laughs> we don't know that kind of thing. You better go and ask, you know, upstairs. So then he goes up to the Tava Tingsa Heaven uh, and uh, and uh, Buddhism has this kind of wonderfully complex and involved cosmology, which I, I won't bore you with. Um, but anyway, he goes up basically one heaven after another, after another, after another, after another, till finally, and all of them keep referring him upstairs. It's like, oh no, I don't know that. You better go ask the professor, you know. And so uh, finally, he ends up in the heaven of Mahabrahma. This the. Uh, the uh, um, the uh, the number one um, Brahma god, and so first of all he shows up and and uh, and Mahabrahma is not around, and so then uh, he addresses the the retinue of ministers and says, "Could you tell me where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder?" And they say, "Oh, oh dear, was well, a good question." Um, but uh, oh, well, you know, there's there's really only one person who can answer this. You know, you better wait to, to see if a Mahabrahma appears, and, and then maybe Mahabrahma can answer your question. But you know, you never know when the Great One is is li- liable to manifest. And the, and so the monk says, "Well, I can wait around. It's okay." And so um, decides to wait a little bit, and sure enough, uh, a radiance appears, and then Mahabrahma manifests in this sort of dazzling, glorious. Um, Form, and so then this this uh, the monk wanders up and says, "Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a question. It won't be all right." Certainly, ask away. Says, Where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder? I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the Almighty Creator, Father of all that are and are to be, all-powerful wielder of mastery. Right. Um, thank you very much. Uh, but uh, uh, what I asked you was, um, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease without remainder? I am Brahma, the great Brahma, all-powerful wielder of mastery, father of all that are and are to be, master and creator of the world. Yes, thank you very much. So, of course, being a Buddhist story, it goes back and forth three times, because... Buddhists always do everything by threes. And finally, um, after the third request, then Mahabrahma leads him aside by the elbow and says, Friend, you are embarrassing me in front of my retinue. I do not know 
where it is that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder. And not only are you embarrassing me, but also you've done wrong insofar as you being a disciple of the Buddha didn't ask him first. So you should return to earth and go and, and seek out the master and go and ask him what, this que- what the answer to this question is. So, duly corrected, then he beams back down to earth again and goes to find the Buddha and then asks the Buddha this question. And the Buddha says, well, you've put the question in the wrong way. This is why no one could answer it, because you are, the way you ask the question presumes a reality that does not exist. So the way you should have asked the question is, uh, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing? Where is it that long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing? This is, and the answer is, and he uses this phrase, the vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang, which means in the, the mind, which is uh, uh, invisible, featureless, which is radiant, which is limitless, the enlightened mind. Here it is that earth, water, fire and wind and long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing. So this is a a really uh, important say image to 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 bear in mind and so I, I I thought I'd just say present this to to help give a sense for what we we're, we're talking about with this the mind which realizes emptiness that it's it's not uh, an emptiness of of absence it's not a, we're not looking for a wipe out of experience or an, even an absence of thinking or feeling that's not what we mean by by uh, by emptiness, by spaciousness. It's more um, finding that quality of our being, which upon which long and short and coarse and fine sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch can find no footing. That where they don't stick. So they're, they're present, the sense world is present, there's the experience of the body, a feeling of sound, of taste, touch, thought, emotion. But there is that quality of our being, that, this very knowing, that uh, upon which those can find no footing, they can't get any traction. It's like a, sometimes referred to as the Teflon mind, non-stick. That uh, nothing sticks to it. So that there's a um, say that the spaciousness that we're talking about is uh, it's like the space between the atoms, the the, uh, the space within which all forms occur. So it's not a space that demands an absence of objects, but it's like a, a or like the transparency of perceptions, the transparency of of of, of all experience. Now, it's not, this is not something to, to believe in or just to take my word for, but just during this time, um, as we, we cultivate the, the, this practice together, just to allow yourselves to get a, a sense for that, to get, a, get a, a, your intuition of that quality, to, to allow that to take root, to grow, and then to, to begin to trust that that when we allow the heart to be spacious, when we we notice, uh, when we let go of something, and we notice that quality of spaciousness, just letting yourself rest in that, resisting the temptation to fill it up with something, just allowing that to be there, letting yourself rest in that. And then noticing how that feels. Just noticing the, the quality of, of delight, of wholeness, of easefulness. And there's the sense world is all here. There's sight and sound and feeling, it's all still here. It's not wiped out, but yet the heart is totally spacious. 
There's nothing that we, we are pursuing, nothing that we're escaping. And even if there's a painful feeling, we've got an ache in our back or our, we need to go to the bathroom or, or our legs are, are sore, at that moment of, of, of realizing that spaciousness, of allowing ourselves to, to recognize that and be with that non-suffering, just knowing the moment as it is, and even though there might be a pain, it's absolutely not a problem. And even, not just physical pain, but psychological pain, we can be experiencing, say, intense grief, the pain of loss of, of someone that we love. And in that spaciousness, it's absolutely all right. There's nothing wrong with it. Dukkha is that feeling of it shouldn't be like this or no more, please. But the dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha, is that is that heart which says, "Oh, it's like this. Grief is like this. Pain is like this. Huh? No more, no less." So I uh, offer these thoughts for your consideration this evening. Hey,